This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Inventing RPG Conspiracies. Carpathian Wood Theft. Streaming TV Structure. And Israel Regardi's Ransacked Library. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with both guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But in the gaming hut, ooh, Robin, are those are those snake scales around Peter Frampton's face and were those Doritos poisoned by the CIA? Are those miniatures actually the tiny frozen souls of three tramps from the grassy knoll? And the dice, um, I guess they're, they're loaded or something. But anyway, beloved Patreon backer Jacob Borsma has got us all head up by asking now that belief in conspiracy theories is going mainstream. And by the way, nice, uh, disingenuous now that there, Jacob, how can you best make up new ones? for your modern horror RPGs. I think that we have to unpick the question a tiny bit because four could be just a crazy conspiracy theory for the crazy conspiracy theorist to believe, or they could be the conspiracy that's actually behind everything in the modern horror RPG. And in my experience, Robin, not to premise reject too much, when you're designing a horror RPG, you are presenting a sort of a, um, what do I want to say? A fictive conspiracy, your Cthulhu mythos, Esoterror, Dracula, whatever it is. And then, uh, using that as a universal joint to attract whatever sorts of conspiracy you decide the game is about. You're not so much coming up with a brand new de novo conspiracy theory. You know, let's do something with, uh, the Alibaba system and the mysterious glowing orb in Saudi Arabia and um, the South African Afrikaner movement and Brazilian fascists. Let's put all those. You don't really do that and then create a whole new conspiracy out of your head. What you do is you take a, a very magnetic core conspiracy, generally the one that the game is about, and you attract fragments of pre-existing conspiracies like Lego blocks. And then you build a, a new one. You don't 
um, you know, go out and, and build one from the ground up, in my experience anyway. Robin, did right, you... Right, because the, the distinction, first of all, is between an actual conspiracy that exists and that you were probably investigating and fighting mm-hmm. and a conspiracy theory, which for this purpose, I think we will assume is a false and mistaken farrago of uh, nonsense, uh, which may be part psyop, maybe just uh, the uh, work of crackpots who used to work singly and now have the internet and can work together. And so the first question is, what is the purpose of this? Is this your, is this the, the vampires, the conspiracy? Is this the esoterrorists who incidentally will cross the streams because the whole idea of the esoterrorists is that they take real events and then through sort of a fakery and a kind of a sense of psychic assault, turn them into supernatural events. So the esoterrorist might very well take a random list, a particular esoteric cell would take a random list of stuff, the more random, the better, and then try and circulate it as a conspiracy theory. They would then see which bits of it stick and they would refine it. And they would then take it out into the world to uh, work its uh, destructive uh, psychic effect on people who are then uh, rabbit holed into it. And then from that, from their sense of cognitive dissonance, they would gain the uh, magical power to do the one thing magic does in that world, which is summon demons. Right. And so that gives you the, both of those things at, at once. There's a real conspiracy loosing a conspiracy theory on the world. And so that is one way to go about it. The other way, I suppose, is to look at what your actual conspiracy is in the world and then think, well, what traces would it leave that would attract the attention of uh, crackpots? And then what level of other things would they then drag into it that would uh, confuse you? And so the thing is, is that when you run across this conspiracy theory or discover that someone in his basement in Helsinki has been found uh, dead and his uh, Facebook feed is full of this uh, peculiar conspiracy about uh, Brazilians, then you go, okay, well, clearly a lot of this is just flat out off the wall, but there's a kernel of truth in it. And how do I find that kernel of truth? And how does that lead me to the vampires or the aliens or, or whatever that is? Right. And, and so the, so the, the notion is that you are creating the red herring that is not intended to fool the players, but is intended to point in some way towards the actual badnesses. So in a modern day uh, game of, of UFO hunting, uh, an updated uh, Delta Green or a uh, modern day Moondust Men, you might have them plunged into the brand new sets of UFO theories that are coming out in the wake of the, of the new Navy PSYOPs and use those as ways to sift for the actual aliens that are also amongst us. And then some of that is, uh, as I've implied, going to old conspiracy theories and just updating them. That's what most conspiracy theories turn out to be. There's a terrific book by Norman Cohn, the great cultural historian called Europe's Inner Demons, which sort of explicates the fact that most conspiracy theories, including the anti-Semitic ones, which is most conspiracy theories by themselves, run back to a pattern that was established uh, established as far as we know. I mean, first set down in print in Roman times in which they're hunting out the witches and the Bacchae, the worshippers of Bacchus, uh, as part of a conspiracy in like the second century BC, and that that pattern then becomes 
the template onto which you draw your fear of Templars or Freemasons or, like I say, the Jews or whatever group it is that you are head up about, it snaps to that mold and modern day conspiracy theories are obviously, once you have seen enough of these things, you, you notice the patterns. And we talked in the previous segment about how QAnon is a modernist spin on the blood libel uh, while bringing in the reptoids and some other things from previous modernist spins on the blood libel. And that you can look at that pattern and say, oh, yeah, that goes back. And, you know, that's part of the accusations of the Templars. It's all, you know, in that string. And so when you are coming up with your new conspiracy theory, what maybe you can think about, um, although this is in the area of not every group is going to be good with this and good for them of looking at the old school conspiracies and trying to run a spin on them. And maybe one of the things that you can do because you are enlightened investigators of the paranaturals, you say, well, all this anti-Semitic stuff, that's just the, the breading that accretes to the pork chop of the truth. We can scrape that off and not be fooled by the blood libely anti-Semitic tropes in here. And we can drill down to the true fact, which is that there's a mystical orb that came out of uh, Brazil or whatever. And it's this mystical orb. That's the real uh, deal. And that that's the thing. And, and so you have a sort of a, a what do I want to say? Like a, almost a documentary approach to it in which not documentary filmmaking, but documentary study where you take various lines of the text and you can say, these are all parts of other texts and we can resense them out and come up with the core text, the Ur text. And in this case, the Ur text is the opposite of the Ur text because it's the new weird thing that yeah, the other you're, you're looking to skim past the familiar garbage mm-hmm. and find the, the one novel thing, which points in some way to whoever is actually right. behind this and is manipulating the conspiracy theorists. Because in addition to having a conspiracy theory, you have to have some reason for it to matter in the game. And if it's wrong, it has to point to something right. And so it could be that the, uh, you know, the actual conspirators are using the conspiracy theorists as a smokescreen so that, oh, this is just that regular nutty stuff so that people don't notice the actual thing they're doing. Or they could actually be using them as cat's paws, as agents, as is done uh, famously in the repair of reputations where mm-hmm. Mr. Wild has a conspiracy where he has blackmail material on everybody and he's made them read the, uh, the King in yellow. And now uh, he's in their thrall. And so you, uh, you know, that the, that the thing instead of the King in yellow is some sort of conspiracy theory that has people doing things, but the theory itself may not help you trace anything, but you know that this guy who had this pamphlet in his pocket was then up on the roof, uh, leaving the grenades in the box, and you can then, uh, you know, trace the source of the grenades or uh, follow him back to his trailer or uh, uh, whatever it is. And in that case, the actual theory itself is something that you can, uh, you don't necessarily have to portray it as interesting. In fact, I think if you want to have a realist approach to conspiracy theory, as you suggest, it's all a bunch of terrible, stupid cliches. And you can just sort of emphasize that uh, fact that uh, this is very sticky. People are attracted to these. They get uh, drawn into it. But the theory itself is not the thing that is interesting. And you can and you can sort of do a, a hide in plain sight situation 
And and let's say you want to take the actual sort of quasi-mystical notion of the kings of Edom as the thing that your conspiracy is actually, that these are the actual secret kings of Edom. They've come out of the demon realm, out of the clapote. They're, they're doing bad things in the world. And so when they find the guy and they go on his browser to find his search history and it's like, well, it's all UFOs and Kennedy assassinations and um, uh, reptoids and QAnon and the kings of Edom and, and the players will say, and the, and the what now? And then that will let you trigger it, even though it's a, existing authentic bit of occult lore or you can have you know that guy's studying the kings of edom because he's a conspiracy theorist and the next victim does it because he's a expert in the kabbalah and he was you know he just uh you know slipped on a on a slick stone in front of his house and you know fell down and there's not a whisper of murder but he was the other big expert on the kings of edom in the city and now they're both dead within 24 hours what does that tell you and and the conspiracy element that you know, in a farrago of nonsense becomes nonsense can then uh, become like your, your barium tracer of what the actual bad guys are. And in this case, they're clopotic entities who are up to the bad Kabbalah, the, the, the wrong kind of Kabbalah. Right. And if you're actually creating what the conspiracy theory is from scratch, perhaps we leave out all of the horrible associations or real ones, mm-hmm. uh, the ingredients, as you suggest, are there is a bad guy doing bad things and that explains everything. That mm-hmm. makes the world make sense. And so uh, another way at creating the theory is the question of, well, what is it that the developers of this theory are attempting to explain? What incongruity are they attempting to uh, resolve? Is it the fact that, you know, the jobs in this uh, industrial town are all going away? Well, what imaginary beings would uh, do something that would somehow affect people's jobs? Or, <laughs> you know, is it that the people have all moved out of this town. Well, clearly something is disappearing them from the town. And so you're looking for something that uh, the believer really cares about and finds just irreconcilably random, which actually really is random in your world or not the result of any one individual, but of a complex force. And so basically you're looking for what is the complex force that I want these imaginary uh, bad guys in the conspiracy theory to be explaining. And usually, as in real sorcery, it's like, why do I suffer misfortune? Why am I not a winner? Why why am I in this trailer instead of having a, a functional business that I used to be able to run before Tom Hanks came and put my bookstore out of business? Right. That that guy, that reptoid. Yeah. That, and so the, the, the question, I guess, is you have to figure out what the job of the conspiracy theory is in your game. And then in terms of the window dressing, that's really... That that's really just about the sort of the flavor that you want your campaign to have. If your campaign is a sort of lighthearted campaign, then you can emphasize the the wacky and the crazy, like in the X Files episode where they uh, meet Charles Nelson Riley, and you have all the wild theories of UFOs are all smashed up together, versus a uh, stark and terrifying UFO story in which you want to emphasize only the scary bits and. Uh, so a lot of that is going to be you're picking your coating or your breading or your or, or your chaff for its flavor and color. And so the notion that you should use logic to pick them, first of all, it goes against the whole thought of a conspiracy theory. But second of all, it also will lead you down wasteful side trails because what you are really trying to do is establish tone or theme or flavor for your game as opposed to think 
what would someone in the real world of this imaginary game legitimately conspiratize about? And of course, the answer is depressingly probably the Jews again, because that's what everyone conspiratizes about. Even in Japan, where they barely even had any Jews, they they took to anti-Semitism like ducks to water. So there's just uh, the the real answer if you're looking to depict the world accurately is depressing and sad and not a little cruel. And so maybe unless you're trying to double down on depressing, sad, and cruel as the themes of your game. Don't try to come up with a realistic conspiracy theory. Try and, you know, throw any old nonsense into the air, not least because your player characters are not going to be hunting down a a phony conspiracy theory and, and trailing into it. And the last thing you want is for them to accidentally get sucked up into something real seeming and not go to the fireworks factory because they're too busy screwing around in the vacant lot next door that you put up the cool sign in. Yeah. So basically, if you make your conspiracy theory fun and original, it's quite different from any real one. (laughs) And it can be exciting and fun. Many of them are still fun, but they are sadly not very original. Right. Uh, Well, on that note, I think uh, that the big conspiracy we need to explain is why we have to go to commercial and then to another hut on the other side. It's aliens. The second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrain store. It's time once more for that most topical of huts ripped from the headlines. And this time around, Gray St. Quentin wants to know, what do you think is the Dracula dossier-related truth behind the illegal logging of wood in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania? And, of course, uh, we are uh, provided uh, with a link, as one does, when trying to get us to rip something from the headlines. And you can, Helps to have a headline. Yes, actually go to the show notes and uh, click on that. And what you will do when you... Uh, do that clicking is find that uh, since 2014, log poaching or illicit or or black market logging in uh, this untouched, ecologically important forest has uh, really ramped up because there's money in it. Loggers are allowed to do uh, a certain amount of logging, but it turns out that if you are willing to use violence and also radically overshoot your quotas, you can also uh, take a lot of illegal logs out of the forest. And there's been a lot of repercussions. Uh, Six foresters have been killed. Uh, Many more have been assaulted. There's been ecological damage. People running a a fish farm had uh, mud strewn in their uh, pond when they complained about it. Then the poachers came back and poisoned all their fish. But the apparent story, of course, is 
something that just makes a lot of sense is that when there's ecological restrictions and a valuable item, people will say, well, I know that doing this is a crime, but it turns out that I'm a criminal, yeah. so I'm going to do it and make some money. People say crime does not pay, but I don't think that they've run the numbers. In this case, it pays a billion dollars a year, apparently, of right. stolen wood. Right, and uh, and it is, according to the, uh, to the data, that there is even slightly more illegal logging going on in Romania than there is legal logging, which begins to make it look like cigarette sales in, you know, New York City, almost, that there's a a serious price mismatch. Uh, one of the guys said that he, he was demonstrating that you can't actually economically sell wood, that uh, in order to do anything with wood in Romania, you have to get on the black market to do it. And so that implies that not only is there the normally tempting situation of something forbidden and uh, ill-paid bureaucrats in charge of monitoring it, but also that the quotas and the f- and the prices are so artificially high, or the quotas are so low and the prices are so artificially high, that they've managed to make it impossible to legally lumber. And so even people that might not want to uh, get involved have to if they want to build anything with wood. And uh, I don't know about Romania, but I do know that it's pretty much impossible to have a construction site without wood. So... There's a something jammed up in the Ram Silva, which is the Romanian uh, Forestry Bureau, uh, already. And then, of course, they're not making it any better by being amazingly corrupt and also tied in with, although the article doesn't say specifically, but with, one assumes, one of the many, many, many uh, Romanian mafias that uh, spring up whenever supply and demand are not quite touching. So, of course, that's the, the actual story. But uh, we've been asked to provide the version with vampires in it. And it can't simply be that Dracula is trying to ship all of the trees out of Romania so they can't be turned into stakes. Right. Yes, that he's one one man's war against wooden stakes. <laughs> um, in the actual director's handbook, I mention that one of the spore that you might detect for finding Dracula's castle, which, as we know, is canonically in the midst of a forest, is that you might find out where there are illegal logging activities that are being shut down because uh, rather than the, the logging being run by Dracula, the logging is being run by, you know, wood thieves. But if they accidentally log Dracula's forest, he does have the government shut them down or just simply walks out into his woods or, or sends the wolves after them. And they all uh, have their throats torn out horribly. And then that shuts it down. So illegal logging becomes sort of the reverse spur of, of Dracula, that wherever it's not happening is maybe a sign that that's where Dracula's castle is. You could also, of course, have the notion that if there are uh, rival vampires, um, one of the things that, uh, let's say, Elizabeth Bathory is trying to pull on Dracula might be to log out his area so that people stumble on Castle Dracula and uh, and interfere with his seclusion and his 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 magics which might involve having a tree older than him that he can you know keep his soul in or or do some other magical uh chicanery with and if that tree gets chopped down by people in the pay of elizabeth bathory well oh darn that's a shame and he uh can't fight back on that ground because her magic depends on the spirits of the air not on the spirits of the earth so he's got to figure out some other way to, to to mess with her uh, so that could be a uh, part of it that it's that it's a uh, 
a hidden thrust against Dracula by one of his supernatural enemies. Right. And it could be uh, a a cover for the, the Romanian anti-vampire effort, right? Is that if you're creeping around in forests trying to find uh, weird-looking wolves or uh, find uh, where the caves and crypts are, uh, what better way, if you're just heading around with your you know, your cell phone out and your GPS, the uh, vampires, uh, oh, obviously it's the Van Helsing crowd again. But if you're uh, logging illegally, uh, that can be your cover. So a part of this could be, uh, you know, your job as agents is to go in, infiltrate the illegal loggers, and then use that to get closer to uh, whatever vampire castle you're trying to get to. The flip side of that, of course, is that uh, maybe Dracula or another vampire, they just need cash. And yeah. they hang around in their castle all day. They're in Romania. There's not a lot of industry. And uh, guess what you can do pretty easily uh, as a vampire is uh, wipe out the competition. And this is a, a trade that makes sense to you. Uh, lumbering, chopping down trees. Uh, you knew what that was uh, in life during the medieval era. And uh, yeah, sure, they have trucks now and stuff. But uh, other than that, it's uh, a nice, uh, you know, sort of, wholesome seeming crime for you to be uh, committing. And another part of it is that indeed there might be something special about the wood that you as a vampire are looking for or need. Uh, perhaps your coffin has been damaged by uh, the last crew of uh, pesky uh, agents. And uh, you know that if you uh, find a, a tree of approximately the same age and the same species and have it made into a coffin, that that is going to be a much safer one that gives you a a better night's sleep. So you may be searching uh, for a particular tree and, and have a, you know, a commission out with the, with the tree loggers. And then the agents could go, well, if we follow these people are looking for this very specific, very old tree, um, maybe then when they chop it down and take it somewhere, we'll know where the vampire is. Uh, the, the notion of a, uh, of a price on wood that makes it impossible to use wood in construction does imply that, someone with a medieval mindset is setting the price that what's actually happened is now that Dracula's in London or America or wherever he is, he doesn't really care about Romania. He's got, you know, uh, a container, uh, a shipping container full of his native soil. Romania can be strip mined as far as he's concerned. Bunch of jerks always holding him back and Ceausescuing around. So he's happy to, to let it rip. And because uh, of his medieval mindset, uh, his agents in Ram Silva have set the price of wood arbitrarily high, and uh, he doesn't care that that leads to overlogging and uh, and wood mafias because he gets his share of the legitimate wood because he's corrupted uh, the Romanian uh, forestry uh, system so much, and he's washed his hands of it. He's taken his his piece of the money out. This is if you want to you know, paint Dracula as sort of a strip mining uh, resource capitalist guy in the way that, say, Marx would have painted him. And I think that uh, that might, uh, rather than have the, the loggers be inadvertently good or inadvertently uh, tells, or even your, your route to Castle Dracula, uh, I think having these guys who are poisoning fish and being jerks and chopping down beautiful natural groves be the bad guys in league with Dracula is the sort of thing that rhymes. And so it can either be that uh, Dracula doesn't care um, or that uh, Dracula has, you know, uh, not that he's making the money off the smuggling, but that he's making the money off the licensing and that that's where his money is coming from. And that's the smuggling is just a, a thing that happens because Dracula has interfered. And so it's, it's like, 
you know, the, the, the flowers dying when he walks by, it's just an effect. Right. And if he's making money from logging, uh, that may be how you find him. How do you follow the money trail from the tree licensing agency, or you actually physically follow the logs as they're shipped to uh, build somebody's country house in, uh, in Spain or in London and uh, use that as your way of uh, finding uh, which uh, Ember Vampire it is. Uh, well, on that note, I think we've covered everything we can possibly cut down in the way of ideas and need to uh, scamper uh, indoor travel to the next hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep our logs unpoached alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Evan Hughes, Martin Rundqvist, Nate Merritt, Urs Blumentritt, and Anders Moline. The glow of the Orthicon tube welcomes us once more into our own living rooms, once more recast as the television hut. And when we're talking television today, as we are, we talk about streaming, streaming very different from the old scripted TV shows that you and I grew up with, with probably a, a cop or a doctor or a doctor cop who it's had even different from the basic cable shows of a few years ago. Right, exactly. And uh, the prestige uh, streaming TV has uh, sort of metastasized in some ways. I will utter the words dire botchkoization. This is my promise to you. Uh, but uh, prestige streaming has altered the way that uh, scripted TV has happened, if only by being an uh, example of charismatic megafauna that gets everyone's attention, even if the majority of TV is still grinding along being garbage soap operas or game shows the way that they always have been. So what are we talking about, Robin? Are we are we all head up by the Queen's Gambit? What, what's going on? Well, I think uh, what I would like to look at, rather than particular shows, is the structural changes that happen under the economics of production for streaming. Right. So basic cable, for example, has a certain structure where uh, they uh, have relatively short seasons as opposed to like network TV. Uh, uh, speaking of network, like Supernatural just ended after 15 seasons of long season orders with episodic and arcs. And I don't think we'll ever see anything quite that long and sprawling again. Ironically, but Supernatural is the Chinese democracy of television. It was revived partway through by being discovered by people on Netflix, but it's not the kind of show that would ever be uh, produced for streaming. And so the 
uh, mission with cable is to get you to sign up for a cable subscription and then stick around and not cancel even when your favorite show isn't currently uh, being dropped one episode at a time. And so their model has been for longer seasons. And Mm -hmm. so Game of Thrones, seven seasons, HBO wanted to extend it even further. The people making it did not want to be slogging through the mud in Eastern Europe any longer and brought that to an overly snappy conclusion. And uh, again and again, you see like full seven season orders of these shows that typically each season will have a a sort of a a set uh, structure to it. And sometimes, as we pointed out before, those shows will have a lot going on in, in the beginning. They'll be slow in the middle with just a lot of character riffing. And then suddenly everything will change in the last season, which then hooks you into the next one. Well, what Netflix has started to do is they've gone from their original model of never cancel anything when they had relatively few shows. And so the opportunity to subscribe to House of Cards was why people jumped onto their streaming service. Now they have so many shows and they are so uh, tied into what their algorithm is that they are beginning to cancel things quite rapidly. So, And so typically, with uh, even with a cable show, if the scripts for season three come in and, well, this isn't as good as two and it's not as good as one, but people expect us to have another bunch of Boardwalk Empire on, in September. Let's, let's greenlight it. Uh, Netflix is now going, eh, you know what? We approved another season of Glow, but now that we're looking at the scripts, you know, season three wasn't that great. And we've done the math and people have stopped watching Glow on our service, which they can do at any time. And uh, you know what? There's just not going to be any more Glow. Or David Fincher can have script problems on season three of Mindhunters and go, you know what? What if I made a movie about Orson Welles' screenwriter instead? Because I don't like these scripts and producing this show is, is depressing and we don't have that many people in the audience anyway. And so as a viewer... Your promise that they're extending you when you jump onto a new show has become quite precarious. Is that, well, do I really want to keep watching this show if there's only going to be a couple of seasons and then just sort of cut off inconclusively in the middle? So this even shorter seasons and fewer of them and the chance that they could just end at any moment has now become the new paradigm. And so uh, it sort of feels like the end of peak TV, that there's now a glut of stuff. They're just throwing every bit of spaghetti onto the wall. And that means some structural changes in the actual episodes themselves. This is very similar to what happened in comics once the direct market became ensconced. Uh, after people stopped saying, there will always be Superman. I'm always going to buy Superman. I only want Superman. Stop telling me about things that are not Superman. And they discovered that the direct market audience would buy number ones of everything. Part of that was for something that doesn't apply here, which was the alleged resale value. But part of it was also just the pursuit of the new and the shiny that you saw a huge plethora of new titles, which often, of course, were canceled six issues in or four issues in or or were never uh, at a number two because the sales didn't turn out to be there, but it was the promise of new number ones that dr- that drove you into the store because, oh, look, an ambush bug series. Oh, look, a, a matter eater lad series. We have to buy those. 
And no, there are not. In fact, you know, 45 years of stories you can tell about Matter Eater Lad. There's barely four issues of stories you can tell about Matter Eater Lad. But that doesn't matter because you're in this comic book store next week and now you're excited about Cosmic Boy number one. This will be the new thing. And we're very excited about that. And so Netflix, because they see their competition as all other things you could be doing with your television, are attempting to give you the maybe this is good number one sensation more than they're trying to reward steady watching. And again, because they pioneered binging the TV show, they don't get the drip of releasing it out every week, the way that HBO or other uh, premium cable did. Uh, they, you know, if they, if you want glow, you could sit there and bloat yourself on glow in 16 hours and then you're done with glow until the next season shows up. And that turns out to be a not great way to get audience retention. And, and deep in the heart of Netflix, they can look at the numbers and notice that, oh, The Office is still our number one thing that people watch on Netflix. It's, you know, something from not just premium cable, but basic boring old episode TV is the number one thing people watch on our series. And if you, and if you go to the top 10 things watched on Netflix, about seven of them come from network television. And the notion that you have to compete with, with network television because you're going to lose those licenses. You have to produce something. Uh, you know that you don't have anything in your barrel as good as the office. So you have to keep trying a bunch of stuff. And again, the economics, uh, even if the, the scripts aren't worse in season three, which they almost always are anyway, but the economics of the show change it after season three because standard Hollywood contracts, which were of course invented back in the days of syndication, gave everyone a big bump in season three because that's when the show could be syndicated once it had enough episodes and then there would be more money coming in. So everyone's salaries go up. Well, Netflix is never going to syndicate anything. If they make it at Netflix, it's going to stay on Netflix forever. Um, right now, the streaming payouts are, are very different from rerun payouts. So if you end the show at two seasons, you've saved yourself a big pile of money, regardless of the quality of the script. And since right now, the thing that's on Netflix has to compete not with everything new, but with the old stuff that is the actual draw of Netflix to people, um, I think that there, there's a couple of, of impulses going uh, there in, you know, uh, Ted Sarandos's head of how you actually solve that problem. And the old problem, the old solution, which was buy everyone's library, has, has it's not going to work now because there's Amazon and Marvel and everybody else out there or Amazon and Disney Plus and everybody else out there, you know, making the same bids for the same bunch of stuff. And in some right. cases having it proprietarily. I mean, Warner brothers is, is never going to let big bang theory go because it was a gigantic success. And why wouldn't they make it the cornerstone of HBO max? Because that can be there, the office in theory. Right. And the, the difference that the streaming service does track is what show gets you to sign up versus what show do you keep watching once you have signed up? Mm -hmm. And so very few people go, well, I just want to watch all of the office let's get Netflix. They go, oh, well, the OV looks good or Mindhunter looks good or this, the crown, I've heard that's good. And then you get on it and then you watch a bunch of it. And then you wind up watching the comfort stuff that you're already familiar with. And part of their, uh, what they track is when they drop a new show, 
how many uh, new subscriptions do they get? Mm-hmm. And their economics of series that they produce are more like video games with sequels. And each video game, generally, there are, are, are exceptions of particular ones that are giant hits. But in general, uh, once you do one game, the sequel to that will do a little bit less and a little bit less. And so you don't have the phenomenon where shows can pick up midway through and become a sensation. The way, weirdly, sometimes dropping a show like Supernatural midway through caused network ratings to go up for Supernatural, but you don't have that effect on the streaming services themselves. And now you're seeing creators and filmmakers try and get around that. It's like, well, I know maybe I'm going to get two seasons or three seasons and it might be cut off arbitrarily. Well, why don't I do a miniseries? Yeah. Why don't I be like British television and write everything to last as long as it lasts? And then if we get a second series, it'll just be sadly disappointing, but not cut off. Right. And so structurally, what you see in the, in the shows is they're, they're have less constraint on what the shape of them has to be. So that when you look at the Star Trek Discovery, it's sort of oscillated back and forth between heavy arc and episodic. And this season, they've gone much more episodic. Uh, they've gone other ways that are frustrating the heck out of me, but they, mm-hmm. they're making it more of a case of the week show with a thinner line of arc in between them. But at the same time, you can really tell that they're no longer bound by commercial breaks. Uh, so this is not something that would ever be on HBO. HBO got a procedural property, Lovecraft Country, and then made it into a dramatic serial and radically pulled out the occult adventure elements that uh, I guess originally attracted them to it and made Mm -hmm. it more like an HBO show. And Discovery is sort of morphing, even going further with a thing that started on network genre television of the case gets solved in Act 3 now, and now there's an entire fourth or even fourth and fifth acts where they have emotions about the case and they do all of the interpersonal uh, subplots. And that is kind of shapeless, but there's nobody uh, at the streaming service that cares about uh, the uh, classic episodic uh, shape from broadcast television because it's not all about making sure that they stay tuned for the next commercial and don't flip away, but rather that they either... Uh, stay on the service or come back to the service when uh, season four of Discovery uh, drops, if there is a season four, which I think is more likely on that service since that's their flagship thing. Right. And since uh, they're playing catch up with the other shows and since they're they probably um, going into Star Trek with the ways that they have to con- uh, construct those deals, they may be working on a different bunch of contracts than the standard contracts already. Because surely by now, if you're a Star Trek person, you know to lock in the long term, (laughs) given that that's how that fandom works. But, you know, something that works for a a minor streamer on a Star Trek show is not something that's going to work for Netflix, even if Netflix wanted to do a show that was um, conventionally episodic. uh, And their Sabrina show is is pretty close to conventional episodic with with arc. And they're ending it after the next season, where if Mm -hmm. if it was on. CW and they could keep the actors around, it'd go for eight, nine. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, and, and that's still happening on, you know, network shows, right? This, the, the, the Berlanti verse of, of superheroes is, is just now beginning to taper to a conclusion in a way that I don't think anyone would have bet it would have kept going, you know, from, from the jump. But with network, you, you don't just reward success, you reward adequacy, uh, because, 
anything's better than having to, you know, go back to the well and have, you know, a, a mom and kids on a couch and hope that that mom and kids and that couch work for America. If you get something that, you know, anyone is bothering to dress up as they're like, yes, let's, let's keep that forever because they're, their eyeballs situation is different from Netflix again. And that's sort of a hybrid model where that and a few other shows, including Supernatural, were sort of the brand of that uh, network that explains whether people want it in their extended cable package or not. And so mm-hmm. they're uh, sort of like broadcast, but then on the other hand, they uh, also need uh, sort of products or uh, shows with a uh, united identity to keep people going, well, I got to got to catch up with all of my superhero shows and, and CW is a place to do that. And it's, and it's very rare that you get a network like HBO or like FX where the brand was literally, we're going to try stuff you won't see on other channels. And then they could actually back that up. And, and that turns out to be a harder model than you'd think. AMC sort of made a run at that, uh, but then settled back into being the show that the, the network that sort of has the walking dead on it and then didn't really run at that anymore. But you saw a brief period in the, in the aughts where the individual expanded cable networks, your, your USA networks and your, and others were all trying sort of broad structural formulas, uh, that, that, that last gasp of great episodic TV that gave us, you know, white collar and leverage and all those sort of caper shows, um, because those are ideally structured to be episodes. And then of course those all went away because they're very hard to write. Yes. Uh, whereas, and I think that if there had been another, AMC show that did as well as Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, Breaking Bad also a show that took off because it was on streaming for a while mm-hmm. that they would have gone in a different direction. But then they came up with uh, something that was a big hit that they could just endlessly copy. And uh, speaking of things being endless, uh, what isn't endless is this segment. So let's get to another hut or segment. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs. We're going to pass the portrait of the uh, king of the fire salamanders. He's going to wink at us in this mysterious supernatural way. And, uh, oh gosh, looks like there's some extra security uh, on the door here. We're going to have to knock on the door because the consulting occultist has suddenly become concerned about book theft, perhaps because of some research uh, that he's been doing. Because it turns out that in early 1969, Someone broke into Israel Rigardi's L.A. home, ransacked his library, and word in paranormal circles sort of went around that maybe it was a motorcycle gang. 
uh, which would be a really cool and really uh, fall of Delta Green sort of thing. So uh, who was Regardi and uh, what fall of Delta Green scenario are we going to get out of this uh, obscure but real life incident? Uh, Israel Regardi is one of the top guys for uh, writing about Kabbalah, uh, the Kabbalah as understood by modern magical practitioners, not the religious aspect of the Kabbalah, and the Golden Dawn system writ large. And we all remember the good old Golden Dawn and how fun they were, and that Aleister Crowley wrecked them, like you do. Uh, Israel Regardi was born in 1907, uh, so he was much too young to get involved in OGGD. His family emigrates to the United States in 1921. He was raised a, a Jew but began to leave Judaism for theosophy and nonsense, uh, becomes a Rosicrucian, joins the Rosicrucian Society of America in Washington, D.C. in 1926, and then, as part of his occult pursuits, runs across Aleister Crowley, and he writes to him and says, uh, liked what you had to say about the Kabbalah in book four, here are my thoughts, and Crowley invited him to uh, Paris to become his secretary. And uh, Rigardi lied to his parents and said he was going to go apprentice with a artist, which I suppose was technically true, goes off to Paris and becomes Crowley's secretary for the latter part of 1928 and for most of 1929. And then for a while, he dates one of Crowley's ex-Scarlet women. Um, and then Crowley says, no doubt, with a, a quavering fondness in his voice, that there's no money for heroin and secretaries. So you're fired, kid. Um, he goes off. He writes some books about Kabbalah. He joins uh, the Stella Matutina, which is a, another post-Golden Dawn order. Uh, during its senescence, sort of briefly sparks it up, realizes that they're a bunch of clownish goofs, even more than the regular Golden Dawn. For example, they had an Enochian chess set that they'd never played, and he sets up the board and then challenges everyone in the Stella Matutina to play Enochian chess against him. And they all make excuses, which Rigardi takes to believe that they have not studied Enochian and uh, are therefore phonies. And he quits uh, the Stella Matutina in 1934. Is Enochian chess a completely different game called chess or is it chess with different pieces uh i believe that there is a chess component and a magical ritual component and the the combination is uh where the magic happens as i understand it although god knows i've i haven't even looked at enochian chess for you know 20 years because i don't read enochian and i don't care that much about playing chess uh but anyway when he leaves the stella matutna he begins to publish the golden dawn rituals because he says if they're in the hands of these clowns uh they will be lost forever and so I have to uh, get them out into the world, which is technically a violation of your Golden Dawn oath that you're going to uh, keep quiet about the rituals. And that, amongst other things, uh, in addition to Crowley being a filthy anti-Semite, causes a feud with Crowley uh, in 1937. He breaks completely with him and then goes whole hog and uh, has the Enochian, the Golden Dawn materials published in a handsome series of volumes from Aries Press in Chicago. Having done that, he figures that's burned his bridges with the occult community. He can give it up. He studies Wilhelm Reich. He uh, studies chiropractory and psychotherapy. And uh, after World War II service, moves to Los Angeles and becomes a chiropractor and makes good money for the first time in his life because he's 
you know, actually doing something that uh, makes people happy as opposed to makes everyone depressed. <laughs> a Nokian chest just doesn't pay. It just doesn't pay the bills. Every so often, occultists will write him letters and he will answer the ones that seem good and put the rest in a file that he labels Liber Nuts, which is one of the lovely things about <laughs> Rigardi. Uh, amongst his uh, correspondence is JFK assassination researcher Mary Farrell, who was going to get into ceremonial magic in a big way, and then the Warren Commission came out and she said, before I do that, let me obsessively study something else for patterns, and the rest is history. And uh, while that's going on, the Agape Lodge, which is one of the American OTO lodges established by Crowley's Viceroy Carl Germer, uh, runs in uh, L.A. with Jack Parsons, who I believe we've already talked about, and a bunch of other people, and then it shuts down in 1953, and Carl Germer resolutely refuses to allow anyone else to bring in new OTO people. Various uh, members of the Agape Lodge get mad at him over that, but he holds out, and then uh, he dies in 1962, and the pressure comes back on his widow, Sasha Germer, to take the uh, OTO library that she has, which includes a lot of Crowleyana and other things, and uh, if she's not going to let people start the OTO again, give it to someone who can do it. And this is where we are at, is that uh, by the 1960s, the mid-1960s, there's a lot of pressure from various wannabe Crowleys to uh, restart the OTO. And old members of the Agape Lodge, such as Ray and Mildred Burlingame, get robbed. They get burglarized on January and in October of 1966. Um, and according to a later report, the burglars, like true friends, only took one of each book, <laughs> leaving lots of duplicates uh, in the Burlingame's occult library. And then Sasha Germer, her house was broken into in September 1967. She claims that a noxious gas was sprayed in her face. So if you remember our, our mad gasser of Mattoon. Maybe that's a connection there. Uh, she loses 80% of her sight. She says it's because of this. Possibly it's also because she's 78 at this point. And she blames a different Agape Lodge woman, uh, Phyllis Seckler, who she felt was no better than she should be even back in the Agape Lodge days. And her daughter, she says, was behind the, the break-in. The only known Crowleyan manuscript that she had was the uh, written, the, the holograph manuscript of uh, Lieber Al which is the, the book in which Crowley reveals the existence of Iwas, uh, the, the spirit of the eon. But uh, who knows what else was in her files? It was a lot of stuff. She was very old and didn't keep track. And then Israel Rigardi, as we mentioned, is robbed in February of 1969. And in between the Sasha Germer robbery and the Rigardi robbery, Phyllis Seckler writes to a former member of the Agape Lodge, Grady McMurtry, who in the interim has joined the army and uh, while he was in uh, England during World War II, studied with Crowley, and there's a story there, I'm sure, and uh, served as Crowley's caliph of the OTO until 1960, when uh, Carl Germer said in so many words, no, you don't get to be OTO caliph. You don't get to start the OTO again. You're fired. And he went to go work for the Department of Labor instead of uh, the OTO, which I guess, you know, lateral move. Uh, and he quits the uh, Department of Labor comes back uh, to California in April of 1969 and investigates the burglaries. And he fingers not a cycle gang, but the OTO splinter group known as the Solar Lodge, which was founded 
by Gene and Richard Brayton. Richard Brayton was a school teacher and they basically bought houses near USC's campus and flipped them and used them as student housing and made a lot of money being landlords. Uh, and supposedly, according to McMurtry, uh, the Braytons, a week after the Germer robbery, showed off Crowley's Golden Dawn robes at a ritual of the Solar Lodge. And uh, to make everything even better, uh, they begin building a pyramidal arc in the Mojave Desert in June 1967. And they were also tied in with a child kidnapping case in October of 1969. And according to some people who don't seem to have done a lot of research, they uh, um, amongst their drop ins was Charles Manson and that they may have been the conduit through which Manson got what bits of Crowleyanity that he uh, carried away in his crazy little uh, brain. So uh, the Solar Lodge are, are bad actors. The people who were in the Solar Lodge, they, they write things like, well, I didn't see any blood rituals or anything, but there was a lot of casual racism, uh, which I was not down with. That's why I was sneaking around in their bedroom. And so say what you want about the Solar Lodge. They they seem to have been no better than they should be. But I, I don't know that anyone in the occult scene in Southern California gets to point a lot of fingers at them necessarily. And it sounds like the whole motorcycle gang aspect was part of a game of telephone where people outside of California were going, hmm, occultists, criminals. Uh, Kenneth Anger's in L.A. Kenneth Anger made Scorpio Rising about a a cult motorcycle gang, or he made Scorpio Rising about a motorcycle gang and it had occult overtones and he made other occult movies. Uh, maybe maybe it was a, a Kenneth Anger-style motorcycle gang that did it, and I think that's where that thread comes from. So yeah. uh, how does this become a Fall of Delta Green scenario? Well, I think the Fall of Delta Green, uh, there, there's a couple of possibilities. One, I, one that I like is that the robberies were carried out by a secretive government bureau uh, and it might have been part of the one of the precursors to Operation Often, the CIA's investigation into conventional magic, or it might have been some other sort of tangential mythos investigating thing, maybe a Delta Green asset, maybe a Majestic asset, and that it's the act of investigating it that makes your team come and handle the veil out, and you get to decide, are you going to finger the Solar Lodge? Are you going to finger a, a, a cycle gang? What are you going to do to cover it up? That's one possibility. And then you also want to solve uh, the crime because if it wasn't Delta Green, you definitely want to know who has any possible actual magic books that got lifted out of Rigardi's uh, library. And the fact that there were, you know, three sets of burglaries uh, implies that either uh, the burglars are in a role-playing game campaign and have to get three parts of a manuscript or that they didn't find what they wanted in the first two places and then maybe found what they wanted in Rigardi's house and that it's one of Rigardi's Kabbalistic texts or even maybe one of the crank letters from his Liber Nuts file that accidentally reveals the truth about uh, the, the Migo or the witch cult or something. And uh, is there a way to get the motorcycle gang in there? Because it, it just seems cool. Can we... Is it a red herring? Do you hear a rumor about Kenneth Hanger and go talk to him? I mean, you can certainly have an occult motorcycle gang. There is an occult motorcycle gang in Fall of Delta Green already, the Two Lanterns. And you could have the Two Lanterns show up if you've already met them and know that they're mythosy. You know, a chapter of them is started up in L.A. in 1966 and is, you know, who knows what they're up to. Maybe they are behind it. Maybe they're being uh, used as muscle by the Solar Lodge. Or maybe 
It's the two lanterns in the solar lodge are fighting over the, um, uh, the, the true evidences of Awas, who, uh, in this version is maybe a voice of Azathoth or a very powerful Migo or some other kind of, uh, horrible mythos entity. And they're fighting over these, uh, revelations of Awas. And, uh, so it's a cycle gang and the solar lodge. I, I think if you want a cycle gang, you can certainly put one into Los Angeles in 1969. I think Grady McMurtry becomes a glorious NPC because he was a lieutenant colonel in the army. He was a pal of Jack Parsons. Like I say, he studied with Crowley when he was in England and then he worked for the department of labor for nine years. So he just screams out to me that he's somehow part of some occult bureaucrat system in Washington and whether McMurtry is a fellow Delta green asset that you have to not reveal your own mission to, or whether McMurtry is a, a bad guy that uh, maybe he was seduced by AWOS back in uh, 43 when he was in England and he's been working for AWOS this whole time. And he's a, a third uh, force, or maybe he's got, you know, some connection to, uh, either the two lanterns to, or to some other group. I, I think that McMurtry is such a great, uh, NPC, uh, to have in there. Uh, it, it, and you'll be happy to know, Robin, that he marries Phyllis Seckler in order to get the sort of, to unify the, the belts, as it were, and restart the OTO, which he does in 1971, completely without authorization from anyone involved and attempts to, uh, basically steal all of Crowley's publishing rights from the, the guy in England who has them. So it's it's a joy all the way around. Well, you know, uh, amateurs steal books. Uh, professionals steal the licensing rights. Exactly. Well, on that note, all this talk of uh, books being stolen and rights being stolen, it's all too terrifying. So I think it is. Uh, we better uh, sneak out of this hut and this entire podcast while promising to be back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsor. Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Asphagam, Park Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the marauding bike gang of underfunding by chipping in alongside such backers as... Chris McCarthy. Jonathan Donald. James Candelino. James Kiley. And Jay Moore. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our classic design, nod knowingly, if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stop.